Hello everybody, uh, welcome to the second episode of the Autodidacts podcast. Uh, my name's Matt and I'm here with my good mate and font of knowledge, Hutto. Good day, Matt. Lovely day here, autumn day at Charity Farm. Uh, couldn't be nicer. Good. It's good to see you. Now, today we're getting uh, further into uh, Yuval Noah Harari's um, book, Sapiens. And um, we're, we're discussing chapter two today, the tree of knowledge. Um, so this is all about really the beginnings of the cognitive revolution and the beginning of separation of, of sapiens from, from the rest of the animal kingdom. Beginning of history. Indeed. So an interesting fact to start with, uh, which I wasn't aware of, about 100,000 years ago, um, some sapiens migrated to the Levant. Um, but they weren't successful, and they had to either retreat back to Africa or they were exterminated. I'm not sure which one. Um, and this has led scholars to believe that at that time, sapiens weren't fully cognitively developed as we are today. Indeed. Just mm. another animal of no great distinction. Yeah. And then, beginning about 70,000 years ago, they had another crack. And they left Africa for the second time, and this time they were ridiculously successful. So... They drove all other human species, not only from the Levant and the Middle East, but from essentially from the face of the globe. Yeah. So something pretty huge has changed yeah. between 100,000 and 70,000 years ago, one would think. Yeah. This is what I was talking about last week, about the particular gene that joined our whole brain together in whole new ways. Yep. So we very quickly spread to Europe and East Asia. And about 45,000 years ago, uh, we, we crossed the open sea to get into Australia. Um, a pretty amazing period in terms of um, innovation. So this period witnessed the invention of boats, mm. oil lamps, bows and arrows and needles. Mm. And there is also clear evidence for art, religion, commerce and social stratification. Yeah, we'd, we'd made the jump to being humans, as I understand yeah. the term. So that's not... They're not animal things to do, are they? No, they're not. It's, this makes us an animal of very great distinction. So the appearance of new ways of thinking and communicating in that time, between 70 and 30,000 years ago approximately, uh, constitutes the cognitive revolution. Yeah. Okay. So what caused it, Hutto? We're not sure. Um, there are some theories. So one which I think you sub uh, subscribe to is that genetic mutations change the inner wiring of the brain. Yeah. And that allows us to think and communicate in new ways. Yes. Uh, as well as the things I was talking about, about rhythm and music and stuff like that, it also enabled a whole development in communication, language, stuff like that, which also resulted in mathematics and the whole box of dice. Mm. Language is crucial. In fact, I mean, I know there's a lot of um, prerequisites we had to become human, but sometimes I think language might have been number one. Um, many other animals have languages. Mm. Um, so what makes ours so special? And the answer in a nutshell is that it's amazingly flexible. Yes. So we can form an infinite number of sentences and talk about an, an infinite number of, of ideas we're, and, and realities. We're talking about innate grammar and we're talking about the other thing that comes with it with your nuanced language you also have storytelling abilities mythology a whole new imaginative layer of construct 
So it seems that the most advanced form of human language was used for not talking about reality, not discussing where the bison was so we can hunt it down, although that was discussed, but it was talking about other humans. It was gossip. Hello. Gossip is a, a fundamental part of human beings. Um, yeah, we're, not that I, not that you and I ever do it. Oh, good heavens, no, no, we are virtue personified. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of our listeners are going to believe that. <laughs> um, so, man's a social animal, with social cooperation being key to our survival, and language was used to track relationships within the group. So. These relationships were probably more critical to an individual survival than the whereabouts of a mammoth, for example, or a lion. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? Harari writes it up that way, and I think he's, he's right on pretty much everything he's written. I would add a couple of nuances. Except for his definition of human. <laughs> except, except for his definition. Something, uh, something trivial like that. <laughs> uh, look, uh, if I were writing the book to follow his agenda, I would probably have written it the way he does. Yeah. <clears throat> I have a slightly different nuance in my agendas, but on a factual basis, we're, we're just talking about particular terminologies, um, difference between humankind, mankind. Now, I suspect that mankind's already been taken. A history of humankind resonated better for his purposes. Yeah. Uh, authors do choose their language to get a certain impact with what they're writing. And I think that's what he was doing too. Yep. Um, so animals can't gossip effectively. And that turns out to be a huge differentiator between us and the animals. Now, it turns out neither could Neanderthals, for Correct. example. So where gossip uh, becomes important is because it tells us things like who can be trusted, who is sleeping with who, <laughs> um, things like that. Yes. Um, and it allowed us to do it even if we didn't know intimately every individual in the group, okay? Yes. So even today, the vast majority of human communication is gossip, and I think, that, I think that's right. I think we spend most... I think I probably spend most of my time... I like to talk about ideas, and I like to talk about what's going on, but I do spend a lot of time talking about other people when I think about it. We all, we all like to participate within the in crowd. We we have this constant debate going on of who is who is one of us and who is one of them and who could be brought from one of them to one of us. We're always trying to expand our own uh, influence within the group. Uh, always trying to push our own agendas while at the same time being protected within the group structure, all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And having a nuanced language is vitally important to working the ins and outs of our social networking. Mm. You want you want people to know that they shouldn't mess with you without alienating everybody. Most <laughs> it's important. a subtle it's a subtle trick. Now we're not the only ones that do that. If you look at chimpanzee societies, for example, um, it's not the strongest alpha male that generally becomes the leader. It is the one who can be most successful at putting us Mm. coalition together. Yep, my, yeah, that's true, and we'll talk about that a bit more in a mm. second. Um, so as our language got more and more nuanced, nuanced, I should say, um, we even started talking, spending a lot of time talking about things that don't even exist at all. So not only were we talking about ideas and what people are like, we started making up, not making up, but we started talking about non-existent entities as if they were real. 
So legends, myths, gods, religions. So to give you an example of the progress of our languages, we went from careful a lion mm-hmm. in our language, which is something that monkeys and other species can do, mm-hmm. to I saw a lion earlier today down by the river and what should we do about it, mm-hmm. which is something that only, only Homo sapiens could do. No other species can do that to our knowledge. Well, and we're talking land species. I think maybe the dolphins can. Okay. okay. And the octopi are surprising, very surprisingly intelligent creatures too. But, oh, yeah, octopus, yeah. yeah. But let, let's stay with the, the manned, man, land mammals. Yep. And, and then, then we finally got to the lion is the guardian spirit of our tribe. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big leap. It is a huge leap and a hugely important leap. And he spends a lot of time, not just in this chapter, but in further chapters where he's talking about concepts such as money and religion, talking about some of those things. Um, if this really is the, the hub of consciousness itself, um, because along with the development of grammar, which is part of what gives us the flexibility in nuance, it enables us to come up with concepts such as I am thinking about myself. Mm. I am aware that I am aware of thinking about the fact that I am aware. These sort of things, I don't think a chimpanzee can handle that level of nuance. So you're talking about consciousness there, awareness and consciousness. I'm absolutely talking about those things. So, And it also brings in the time factor. So yesterday I was unhappy and today I am happy and I would like to make myself happy tomorrow. Mm. This has suddenly given us, you know, past, present and future. Yeah. And we can then look at how I was, how I am, how I will be, yeah. which gives us automatically a timeline and a way of thinking about um, what I can do tomorrow and how I can work towards tomorrow and all these sort of things and then communicate that to the rest of the tribe. Yeah. If we all work together, we can sail over the horizon and find this whole new land, I believe, is there. Mm, mm. So Harari gives a, an amusing example uh, where he basically says, can you convince a monkey to give you a banana if you promise him unlimited bananas in monkey heaven? Um, and I think that would be quite the challenge. I think uh, Harari does such a wonderful job of really giving examples which hit his point on the head. <laughs> and this is a beautiful example. Yeah. You know, you, you look at this one and say... It does illuminate the concept, doesn't it? It because does. Because you just know that you're just not going to be able to do that. Absolutely right. Yeah. And, uh, and then you really have to start thinking, yeah, but if we do it with human beings, you know, yes, I can do it with a human. And yeah. no, I can't do it with a monkey. That's... Yeah. Gen- generations it's our strength and our weakness perhaps it is and what he's also saying is this is what we had that none of the other hominids had yeah yeah so we as humans can weave common myths such as the biblical creation story the aboriginal Dreamtime stories yeah. etc such stories give us the unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers it also says something about the curiosity that comes with it um <clears throat> I I imagine a 12-year-old Aboriginal child who's you know just coming into the rights of adulthood and he's finally done all the things they required him to do and he's sitting around for the first time with all the other mem- adult male members of the tribe and he says, so 
now you can tell me, where did we all come from? Mm. And, you know, this has immediately put the village elders on the spot, as it were. Uh, yeah. We, uh, you know, we got to come up with something <laughs> here to convince the kid. We can't tell them anymore that we don't know. Yep. So all of a sudden they start weaving the story of where we Originally that happens, but then what happens with subsequent generations is they buy into the myth as well. Absolutely. So I read somewhere once, and I'm paraphrasing, that there's, there are no better brainwashers than the brainwashed. Yes, Correct. And it's very true. Yeah. I mean, if you if you know you're lying, I, I feel like a lot of people can pick up on it. But if you are being 100 percent sincere, you're going to be a lot more persuasive. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other the other story this remind, that I got reminded of when you were talking, and I'm not sure if this is a myth or not, but the, the myth was that the the shaman or the witch doctor in an Aboriginal tribe could point the bone at, at an Aboriginal tribe member, yeah. which was essentially a death sentence. Yeah. And the individual invariably would go away and die. Yes. That's amazing. So this is this is life and death, this stuff. Oh, absolutely. I came across the same stuff in Ghana. Um, oh, yeah. You know, the, the juju man and this sort of stuff. Um, we know that the placebo effect has a significant effect on your ability to heal yourself or your ability to... It begs the question, if, if a respected medical doctor gave me a, a, a pill, right, and then five minutes he said, he said, oh, by the way, that was poison and you're going to be dead in, you know, an hour. Yeah. And I believed him. Yeah. You know, what are the chances of me dying? Might be pretty high. Absolutely. And again, the authority figure thing is, is a major Yeah, absolutely. The guy in the white coat. Yeah, that's right. The, we, these days, we tend to do it with the guy in the white coat. In the uh, the old days, it was the medicine man or the witch or whatever, you yeah. know, putting the curse on. So the myths we spin today uh, are just as much myths as what we used to spin back in the day. They I are. mean, these people were the same as us, essentially. You know, it's a different environment, of course. Yes, yes, yes. But, you know, as in, as individuals and as uh, groups, the dynamic, you know, people don't change. <laughs> well, very slowly. Correct. I mean, the knowledge base has changed, but the um, the fundamentals of our behaviour were set back in that sudden transaction that happened 70... And, and before that as well. I mean, we still have our lizard brains and so forth. Yes, we're not we're not completely rational wise beings. We're oh. still animals at our core too. Oh, far from it. But again, just as you'd have trouble convincing the uh, chimpanzee to, you know, give you bananas for future heaven, you'd have the same problem convincing a chimpanzee that he's going to die because you've told him he's going to die. <laughs> it, it, you know, and yeah. the the human brain is wrestling with the concept of what. What is I? And this this is important. Once you've got this knowledge, this this pronoun I and me and us and all this sort of thing, you've you've then got to work out what it means. And so, I know that my hand stab it with a pin; it feels pain. So, as, as a small child, I'm learning to cope. You know. Who am I? Who is Matt? And I've soon recognised that everyone, not everything obeys my, what I'd want it to do. My hand obeys what I want it to do. Yep. Matt's hand doesn't obey what I want it to do. The Sorry about that. Yeah, the table <laughs> really does. But, so one factor is I've learned things that obey what I want them to do and the other things which don't. Were. So the things which are me and things which are not me. Then I've got a different concept which relates to pain. I know that if I stab a needle in my hand... I hurt. Yes. Stick a needle in Matt's hand, doesn't hurt me a bit. <laughs> <laughs> and stabbing the table, same thing. So, you know, 
not me, me, very clear from a pain threshold, then I can do other things. So I've got the obedience of movement and the obedience of, of pain and things like that. But I also find out it doesn't quite work that simply. So, you know, cut my hair doesn't hurt me. Mm. So maybe my hair is not part of me for some equations. I could pull it out by the root if you like. Uh, yeah, that that would be a different effect, <laughs> but you'd you'd be searching for some in places. <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, you know, cutting fingernails, same thing. Yeah, cutting tape. So I recognise I've got various concepts of what is me. The physicists may run around and say, well, yeah, physically these atoms are part of me, but um, your know, sensory system is different, etc., etc. Yeah. And then we've also got the consciousness thing. You know, um, we'll keep the NSA listeners here. The, the conspiracy to assassinate Trump, for example. Well, yes, Matt was definitely there. No question about it. We all, we all agree. The FBI have got us on the, the wrong end here. And uh, we've all agreed that Matt was there. And Matt says, hey, I wasn't there. Yeah. We say, oh, yeah, he was there. He, he gave us all the lift there. No question. And Matt says, yeah, but I was just sleeping in the corner. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. And once again, you've got the thing. Yes, Matt was there physically. Yeah. But he was asleep. But he, he wasn't was, conscious. He was not conscious. So it, doesn't, it, it wouldn't feel to me like I was there. Correct. Uh, as an active participant, awareness, none of those things else. The other, the other thing that springs to my mind is that we can suffer pain in non-existent limbs. Yes, we've got... So the, the, the borders... We don't do it perfectly. The borders get blurred sometimes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you can have local anaesthetics and even things like um, hypnosis and stuff like that. Yeah. Meditation can, can blunt pain. So we've got these concepts of what is I and not what is not I, but we're also aware that they've got fuzz, fuzzy edges all around them. Mm. But coupled with our curiosity and our language development, we have to build these structures. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of cooperating flexibly in large numbers, ants and bees can cooperate in large numbers. Yes. But they can't really do it flexibly. Yes. Wolves and chimps can cooperate more flexibly, but not in really large numbers. Yeah. So sapiens can do both. We can cooperate extremely in extremely flexible ways with countless numbers of strangers, and we do it every day. I mean, I'm connected to the internet right now as we speak, and, you know, strangers are listening to this podcast... And we are, you know, we've never met them before. Maybe one day we will. Uh, and that's essentially, according to Harari's thesis, which is hard to disagree with, that's why we rule the world. Yes. Basically because we communicate flexibly or cooperate effectively in large groups. Yes. Which I've never heard it put in those terms before. I've I'd heard about the harnessing of energy and things like that, which is true, but it's probably a consequence of being able to... Um, of being able to cooperate flexibly yes. in large groups. Um, I read The Naked Eight back when I was 14 years old, um, but it didn't make any of these sort of points at all. Yeah, yeah. So um, getting back to the the, um, the alpha male in, in primates that uh, you were talking about before, I didn't know this either, but it turns out the alpha male doesn't lead the group because he's physically stronger, but because he's a better politician. Yeah. He leads a large and stable coalition of other chimps. Um, in order to function, all members of coalition must know each other intimately and have spent a lot of time together. Um, and this works up to troop sizes of 50 to 100 individuals. Um, if it gets much bigger, it gets increasingly unstable and until it breaks up into separate troops. Yeah. 
and larger than one, larger than one hundred is almost unheard of. It's extremely rare. Um, separate troops sometimes engage in open warfare and even genocidal activity. So you mentioned last week that humans uh, are probably the best at uh, making war with each other. Absolutely. But I'm not sure. I'm not an expert, but uh, you know, um, apes can certainly engage in in war and genocide. Um, they do, and probably other creatures do as well. I don't know ants. And they're they're just not nearly as efficient at it. I mean, we actually tool up to produce weapons of war specifically aimed at killing other human beings. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's them, Hutto. I mean, you know, that seems seems perfectly reasonable to me. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, <laughs> not suggesting it's unreasonable. <laughs> so um, early humans were probably similarly organised to these um, these troops of, of apes. Yes. Um, but after the cognitive res- rev- revolution, we were able to gossip, and that helped us to form larger and more stable bands because we were able to learn more about more people and yes. know whether we could work with them and trust them and, yes. with them and so forth. The interaction with other groups and tribes was very important. Yeah. So that that got us up to a natural size of 150 individuals in a bonded group, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a 50% or 100% increase. Mm-hmm. And uh, not huge, but, you know, but important. Um we actually see a similar phenomenon these these days in the management of businesses. So yes. if you start a small business, you basically run it by word of mouth. And I, I, I worked in a, in a business for 13 years. When I started, I was employee number 16, and we didn't really have policies and procedures and all of that stuff. Yeah. And the business worked really well. It was very profitable, uh, grew fairly large. By the time I finished there, we had about 150, 160 people. And I was fairly good friends with, with the boss. I'd worked with him, you know, with him for 13 years. And I was chatting to him one day over a beer and he said, oh man, you know, once we got 150, it just became 10 times harder to manage. And they actually ended up selling the business yeah. for, for a nice profit yeah. as well to a larger corporation, yeah. um, which didn't necessarily go down well with the existing staff because we, we were used to sort of having a friendly, yeah. bonded environment. Yes. And now we're just another number in a, in a bigger corporation. So that was my real life experience of, of, of something like that. So, you know, I can totally buy into what he's saying. Yeah, it's it's the movement to another level where you've suddenly got to have policy manuals. and Yeah, yeah. and no one likes that stuff, but, you know, you've got to do it. You've got to do you've it. got to do it over a certain size. And I didn't really even know that when I was, I used to write policies and things and no one used to worry about them. I'd be like, oh, they're not doing it right. But it turns out they probably were doing it right. <laughs> um, so how did sapiens um, cross the threshold of 150 bonded individuals? And it appears that it probably happened with the appearance of fiction. So belief in common myths. For example, two Catholics who have never met can go on crusade. Yep. Um, or they can pull funds and build a hospital together. Yep. Right? Um, two Serbs who have never met might risk their lives to save one another. Mm. I know from my life experience, I sometimes am moved to tears when I see an Australian on the podium at the Olympics and they've just won a gold medal. Now, I don't know this person. I'm nev- I've never met him. I'm never going to meet him. But all of a sudden, in that moment, I am bonded to the idea that that person is, in a sense, me. Yes. And, it, in, and their triumph is my triumph. Yep. So very... which, 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 when you think about it, is a bit absurd. I mean, it's not absurd, but it's a myth. 
It is, and it's very powerful. And it also links into what I was saying last week about, you know, 150,000 people all in a stadium together and then the music starts. And yeah. one. And, you know, one of the things with the Olympic ceremonies is then you play the national anthem and yeah. everybody stands and, you know, it resonates in this powerful It, it definitely moment. does. It certainly moves me. Yeah. Um, now, of course, outside of the swimming pool, we don't see Australians on the podium nearly enough. <laughs> yeah, and I think we're getting, I think we're falling down the rings in the swimming as well, to be honest. Well, we're not yes, quite yeah, as dominant yeah, as we used to be. We've been relying on the females a lot lately. Yeah, so we're going to have to get better at the pentathlon and things <laughs> like that. Um, another example is two lawyers can band together to defend a stranger because yeah. they both believe in, in common myths such as laws, justice, yeah. human rights as well as the money that's paid out in fees. Yeah, and, and again, you know, this is something where uh, Yuval would undoubtedly be able to write a whole book on this, and he's just boiled it down to the gold and come up with two or three examples you can't possibly deny. No, yeah, that's background. right. So the, the main one being the Peugeot myth. So Peugeot, as you know, is a car yeah. and a car company. It employs, a few years ago these figures are, but it employs 200,000 people. It produces more than one and a half million cars a year and it earns $55 billion euros, I should say, in revenue. Yeah. Now, that's a powerful entity in the world. Yes. Uh, it's it's in your and my mind. I've never had a Peugeot. I, I'm not a car person, but I'm, I've all been aware of... Yeah. I've been that, aware that yeah. Peugeot exists my whole life. Yeah. We, we've had... Uh, you know, Ford was the early one in the, the USA, of course, but yeah. uh, Peugeot's one for Europe. Is it Peugeot, is it? Or well, I, I, I believe there's different people pronounce okay. it different ways. So I'm, I've always been aware that Peugeot exists. But in what sense does Peugeot exist? This yeah. is the question. So, um, the cars. If all the Peugeot cars in the world suddenly got destroyed overnight, would Peugeot still exist? Yes. And if the Peugeot factories, mechanics and showrooms, etc., all got destroyed overnight, would Peugeot still exist? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So, entity. And if the shareholders all got coronavirus, can I say that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I probably shouldn't say that. Uh, if the shareholders all got sick and died overnight, Peugeot. does Peugeot still exist? Still exists. Um, the only way Peugeot ceases to exist is if the company is dissolved yeah. by a judge. Yeah. And in, in, in a real sense, that just means that, okay, in everybody's mind now, yep. Peugeot doesn't exist. Yeah. So that's the way that it doesn't exist. So it always just existed essentially in our in our mind. Yeah. Um, so, it's a figment of our collective imagination, a legal fiction, yeah. a limited liability company in this yeah. case, which is an ingenious and productive invention. It's not true, yeah. but it's ingenious and productive. Absolutely. <laughs> and legally, it is an artificial person. It's, yeah. It's, as you know... Countries, um, gods, um, what's the other one, artificial artificial intelligence, you know, we have various ways of imagining and creating artificial realities. I'm going to digress a little bit here, and I don't want to spend too long on this, but if you're developing an AI, and maybe one one of the huge challenges is allowing the AI to have this ability to believe myths. That well, humans yeah. do. Yeah. That'd be tough to program. Yes. When you can explain what a story is to an AI, then you're starting to talk about self-awareness in what I refer as human terms. Yeah. Um, and this is what you can't do to a chimpanzee and you couldn't do to any of the other hominids. Mm. Um, but 
had conversation last night with a lady talking to her granddaughter who's seven, has read Harry Potter and has been talking about her being a witch and stuff like that and saying, you're, you're not really a witch, are you? Just coming to the point of understanding yeah. reality versus Well, interesting. I, I mean, I, I used to have a stepson as well and, and he was a little Dutch boy. He spoke no English and we went to Ireland on a holiday and when we first got to this island, the bus driver was taking us around and telling us where all the leprechauns lived. Yeah. And I was translating to yeah. my stepson. In, and he was totally on board. He was going, you know, because I couldn't communicate the subtlety. You know, I, my Dutch wasn't good enough yeah. to, to explain, look, this isn't really true, but we're kind of all pretending right. that it is true. Yeah. And I felt a bit bad, actually, because so, so then this poor kid, I think, actually believe the leprechauns you know lived on this island that's right um and it was really funny i, I really bumped bumped my head up against that issue yeah, in my yeah, life. yeah and we have it you know dragons and santa claus when does a child get told that santa claus isn't real yeah um, but we all know what dragons are and yeah. stuff like this shared yeah. imagery so the amazing thing is that Peugeot, the modern company, was basically created in the same way that priests and sorcerers have created gods and demons throughout yep. history, by telling stories. Yep. And, and the key part, convincing people to believe them. Buy <laughs> into the story, that's right. Yeah. Um, but if enough people buy in, it is so, you know, the king enforces. Yeah. And I find this disturbing, actually, because I'm a, I'm a big truth man. And uh, it turns out that I've been living a lie for most of most of the time. I thought I was living the truth, well, not a lie. I've been living an untruth. I, we talk about whether yeah, it's a we'll, lie. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, it's a good question. So a good example of this is Catholic communion, turning the bread and the wine into God's flesh during yes. the ceremony. Yes. Um, if the Peugeot lawyers do all the right things and fill out all the right forms and sign them and stamp them, voila! You now people will now act. As yeah. Peugeot, the company actually exists, That's right. <laughs> which and, is an incredibly powerful. And if myth. you if you get the right, you know, stamps on your birth certificate, and someone in immigration says yes, you can come in, you suddenly become an American citizen or whatever yeah, it may yeah. be, and you yeah. know your life changes. So. Yeah. yeah. And there's now some interesting debates going on. Um, America, for example, whatever you go under in terms of surgery or anything else, they don't let you change your sex on your passport. So all sorts of interesting stuff goes yeah, with this. Yeah. So nowadays, over time, we've put up an incredibly complex network of stories. Mm. Um, AKA fictions, and you can call them fictions if you like. Social constructs, which is a, a word that I use a lot. Yeah. Uh, two words that I use a lot. Or imagined realities. It's, it's not a lie. No. Okay? It's an imagined reality. Everybody, everybody believes it, and as long as they continue to do so, it continues to exhort force and energy in the world. Yeah. Um, priests aren't lying. They no. sincerely believe in what they're doing. Correct. Right? And, and you can't say someone's lying because they say, you know, that's the border of America, you can't come in. Exactly. Yeah. So there's this, there's this boundary, which I haven't thought about much, between truth and a lie, yeah. um, which is not a mistake... It, in one sense, it's real. In another sense, it's not. That's but, it. I mean, well, even that's wrong because it's not real in any sense. It's only real because we've all decided to agree that it is. Ah, oh, now that's, that's where we reach our point of dispute. <laughs> Controversy. But, but what we are agreeing with and what you, Val, I feel very, very clear in this chapter is this is what makes human beings, homo sapiens, post the cognitive revolution, completely different 
to all the other hominids, all the other chimps, all the other creatures. Yeah. Because we live our life in this mix between objective reality and this this world we're talking about. Yeah, so we're we're living in a dual reality. Yes. Wow. Yes, <laughs> absolutely wow. And it is for us both an enormously powerful solution and also an ongoing a continuous struggle, a yeah. battle to reconcile. Yeah. And very complex for the seven year old child trying to work out what we mean by reality. Yeah. Um so yeah, we've we've got an objective reality uh, that we see around us, and then we've got the imaginary realities of gods, nations, corporations, and so forth. Um, the imaginary realities have become more and more powerful to the point where objective reality is actually, in a lot of cases, under the power of these imaginary realities. So yeah. the environment, for example, um, can suffer due to decisions made by the United States and Google. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, human behaviour can be flexibly altered by altering the myths. So, for example, in 1789 in France, the majority of the French population changed from believing the myth of the divine right of kings to believing in the myth of the sovereignty of the people. And it can happen surprisingly quickly, yes. Um, so, basically, back in the day... I mean, we're well into the Cognitive Revolution now, so we won't refer to the ancient past too much from now on, I don't think. But um, changes back in the day resulted from environmental pressures and genetic mutations, yeah. more than from cultural initiatives. Uh, and this is why it took so long to evolve. Yeah. Um, so Homo erectus, for example, used basically the same stone tools for two million years. Yeah. And didn't really change much in that entire two That's million right, years, yeah. which is a lot longer than we've been around. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that... probably longer than we're likely to be around Indeed. as well. Um, just doing their thing. Yep. Um, sapiens have been able to change their behaviour quickly uh, since the cognitive revolution. Even if behaviours aren't evolutionarily adv advantageous. And Harari uses the example of the celibacy of the religious elite. Yes, so that's certainly not evolutionarily advantageous, no. but it certainly had a lot of power and been carried down through yeah. generations. Um, so sapien sites, one of one of the one of the advantages for sapiens of being able to do this collective imagination was that we were able to trade. So, so ancient sites show evidence of trade. Yeah, Neanderthal sites don't have any of that evidence. I did see some discussion that they had got as far as regional industry. So on a in, within the local region. So trading with the next door neighbours. You, yes, correct. You've got a bit of specialisation like that. But Homo sapiens stuff in a very early day, there was stuff appearing on different continents. Oh, absolutely. We yeah. we were pouring over the earth. Yeah, but also goods were as well. Yes, yes. So I guess what happens is you trade it with the guy next door, then he trades it with the, his guy yep. next door, and you, you know, this is all around the earth. I mean, I suppose it, there might have been some travelling as well. I don't yep. know. We don't have written records. Um, we had, you know, we had enormous flexibility. And Harari's point that for most creatures, a change in behaviour could only result in a change from circumstances or a change of their genes. For human beings. We were just changing our culture, and that was so very quick. Yeah. Far and away the most flexible creature in terms of our behaviour. Yeah. 
So trade, for example, is is built on trust. So you need to be able to trust strangers yes. to, to trade. And these days that trust is provided by money, banks and trademarks and yep. so forth. Um, tribal trade often took place by appealing to a common god, a mythical ancestor or a totem animal. Yeah. And when we were trading, we would have been trading knowledge and information as well because that just happens, doesn't it? When humans get together, they start chatting. Yep. And you start, usually, you're asking questions and, and learning things. Yep. Uh, in terms of hunting, uh, an effective way for, for ancient sapiens to hunt was to um, chase animals, large animals, into a, into a gorge and then basically round them up. Yep. Okay. Um, Neanderthals didn't have the skills to be able to do that, the cooperational skills. Right. So that could be one reason why we outcompeted them. And if we if we get, if we move in somewhere and, and uh, remove all the large game, essentially, then the the Neanderthals, Neanderthals are going to struggle. Um, they were probably the victims of of, of that. Um, so the cognitive revolution is the point at which history declared its independence from biology. Yes. And again, until I read that, I'd never seen that as clearly as yeah. Harari clearly Yeah, it's a good had. way to put it. Hmm. Um, interaction of ideas, images and fantasies become more of a change maker than biology, gen genetics hmm. and evolution. Um, in small groups, we are embarrassingly similar to chimpanzees. Yes. <laughs> Significant differences come to the fore once we reach groups of larger than 150 individuals. Yeah. Once you get us to 2,000 individuals or more, we're just unstoppable. Yes. Um, we have a mythical glue that binds us together. We do. And music. And a bunch of other things. Well, but, um, yeah. Which okay. also then comes through to technology and so on. But, yeah, the, the heart of it is what you said. So, in, in a nutshell, biology now sets the parameters for human behaviour. I don't think I'm going to fly. I don't think I'm going to fly no, unaided right. any time soon. But the parameters are set for us are very large. Yes. And our behaviour within those parameters uh, are very complex. Yes. They are allowed to be very complex. Yes. Um, which, which basically means if we want to understand the behaviour of sapiens, unlike other animals, we need to understand history. Yes. Not just the biology. Yes. Questions? Yeah, well, okay. So so that's pretty much wrapped up the chapter. Yeah. Now, as I like to do, I like to ask you impossible questions at the end of our, and I expect you to come up. You're... I mean, they are impossible, but I still expect you to answer them correctly. Absolutely. You're, you're, you're very good at that. <laughs> All helps to keep me humble. So the, the questions that came to my mind while I was um, while I was going through this chapter is... The main takeaway for me was that we live in a dual reality, and that, that blows me away. Yeah. And it disturbs me. So how much of our time do you think is spent in objective reality as opposed to imagined reality? Yes. It's, it's, it's a really good question. Um, and one of the reasons it's a really good question is because it, it includes the, um, an invalid implicit assumption that... We spend our life either in an objective yeah. reality or a share, because yeah. we do both. Now, yeah. if you're looking... So we spend 100% of our time in both. Maybe. No, we don't. For instance, if I'm clipping my fingernails, I'm probably just living in an objective reality at that point. Yeah. Whereas if I'm doing something like reading a story about dragons, I'm probably living very much in my mythical reality. Oh, yeah, but it doesn't... Yeah. It doesn't have to be a story about mythical creatures. No, no, no. I mean, that's, that's but, taking it. But the more common thing is if I'm dealing with something about Matt's coming to see me, my concepts of me 
are a mix of an objective reality that the physicists could measure. And these things we're talking about, about concepts of me, consciousness versus unconsciousness, pain, things that do what I want them to. So the Taoists, um, Zen Buddhists, look at it that an event such as a wave breaking upon a beach, which you're perceiving, is actually occurring in three times. It occurs objectively out there on the beach, the wave breaks and makes a swooshing sound and all the rest of it. Then there's the your senses, your eyes and your ears receiving light and sound. And so that's going into your senses. That's the second reality of the event. And then that's all being interpreted within your own head, within concepts and stuff like this. You're painting it with emotions. You're either wanting the noise to go away because you're trying to make a recording or you're thinking how beautiful it is to see the sunlight playing off the way. And, you know, we then go on to paint pictures of it and stuff like this. Mm. And this is all happening within the concepts we've built in our head and our concept framework. So our mind is always operating within these conceptual frameworks we've built, which are in many cases, quite mythological. Mm. Um, and the other way of looking at that is through um, cognitive behavioural therapy, you know. Today, I am a powerful, mature, intelligent, humorous male, good-looking and all that. But what if you're none of those things? And then tomorrow, of course, I'm going to be this downtrodden, over-the-hill, past-it, balding guy that nobody really wants. What's changed? Just my own perception in my head. Today yeah. I've got three reds in me, and tomorrow I'm dealing with a hangover that's trying to drink as much <laughs> as Matt has created. <laughs> yeah, OK. Um, another question. How does the realisation of living in a dual reality affect a person who values honesty and the truth? Well, this is a great question for a completely different reason because I don't really have a good answer for it. Um, oh, well, that's unacceptable. Well, yeah, OK. Well, look, I saw a question on Cora the other day about um, what is reality and was comparing this sort of stuff. Um, and there was a guy who studied physics and psychology and philosophy, I think it was, and he went with the physicist definition, reality is the objective reality, the physicist thing. And I asked him why he picked that, because he obviously knew how the philosophers and um, psychologists would view it um, as well, and he didn't answer me, which is, but it, it left me thinking about it. To what extent is what the physicists are dealing with reality? Because a physicist can't see a country. As far as a physicist is concerned, yeah, countries don't exist. No one, no one can actually see it. That's right. But what you can see is... Is what everyone thinks is a country. Well, no. What, what you can definitely see is some brilliant photos of the wall between Soviet Union and, and West Germany. Yeah. And, you know, they cleared the land and the forest and they ran the, the fence or the line to the Baltic Sea or whatever it was and... Yeah, you know, we can all see that. That's the reality. Mm. And it seems to me that the answer lives in ideas. Um, it is in ideas that we shape the world. You can't say that ideas don't exist, but it's darn hard to observe them or measure them. Measure mm. them. Mm. And so, well, I don't have a nice watertight answer to this question. My answer to it is you need to evaluate ideas, what ideas are, how you measure them, how you count them, where an idea is, all these sort of things. Until you've got answers to that, you haven't got a framework for I believe that some of these answers would be found through the practice of mindfulness and meditation, which are about 
really slowing the mind down, just being in the objective reality of that moment. Okay, and that's a way of investigating some of these phenomena, I think. It is. It, it clears a lot of stuff out of the way, and it's, it's another very interesting perspective on looking at it. And I would also have to say that I don't think the physicists have spent nearly as enough time looking at questions like messages, mind, mm. information order, things like this. Yeah, I mean, you know, perhaps the universal theory of everything will, will, will need to include consciousness, which is, which is, we haven't really got into the physics models yet as far as I can, as far as I know, we, we'll talk about that in future I times. agree with you. Um, so as, as far as a person who values honesty is con and truth is concerned, I think you have to expand your understanding yeah, of well, what that, those Actually, actually that is a good answer. I, I value honesty and the truth, and I've kitted myself into thinking that I, I live in a fairly objective reality, and it turns out, after reconsidering, that I haven't been anywhere near. Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't have to be disturbing, it just shocked me a bit. You yeah. know, it shocked me because I learned something about myself that I didn't uh -huh. know before. Uh -huh. And I, I, I'm probably attributing a negative emotions around it, which, which I probably shouldn't. I need to think about it more and, and right. process yeah. it. I've been wrestling with some problems in epistemology coming out of it. You know, how do we know something is a fact as against a fiction. Yeah. And it turns out to be very difficult. A lot of statements you think are factual statements. You know, the majority of evolutionary scientists believe that the dinosaurs were wiped out by a meteor. Yeah. Now, that's absolutely correct. The majority of them do. There's a significant minority of evolutionary scientists who think it wasn't a meteor, yeah. that they were already dying out, yeah. etc. So you actually find it's, it's a statement of fact about what the majority believe, yeah. it's, not, it's just a statement of opinion yeah. about what was... The important. more you get to know about a topic, the more you realise that it's not written in stone. Uh, I'm a history buff and I started reading Fairly Simple History and you, you kept getting, keep getting the same narratives and you'd be like, okay, so that's what happened. But as you start to understand events more, like the French Revolution's a classic example, I mean, hugely complex. Yes. And it's like, oh, okay, this didn't really go down the way that I kind of thought. So there's, there's levels of narrative yes. as well. Yes, yes, yes. And, uh, you know, how far down does the rabbit hole go, Hado? Very good question. <laughs> now, I'm going to do something quite surprising. I'm going to let you have the last word on that. That was a very good, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's wind it up there. Uh, good talking with you as always. Indeed. And I enjoyed it immensely. And uh, thank you to our listeners for joining us. And uh, elbow bump. Elmer Bump. And uh, I'll see you next time. La, 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 la.